0: I honestly did not know how to react. I saw it, is this a mistake? Um, Was this a misprint? This is a a bit of hope
1: um, that we can continue to fight on for a little bit longer.
0: There are so many tears being shed. People are so just elated. You know, this is just wonderful,
2: wonderful news.
3: From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, a look at the Supreme Court's ruling that gives new life to DACA and what it means for the future of thousands of immigrants. On Thursday, June 18th, the Supreme Court issued a ruling that upheld the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, better known as DACA, The program was started under the Obama administration in 2012 under pressure from immigration rights activists.
1: Effective immediately,
3: the Department of Homeland Security is taking steps to lift the shadow of deportation from these young people. DACA aimed to protect undocumented immigrants who were brought to this country as children by offering them a temporary stay of deportation along with the chance to apply for a permit to work and study in the United States. But several years later, the newly elected Trump administration tried to get rid of DACA. Then Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced that the program would be eliminated in September of 2017.
0: The program known as DACA, that was effectuated under the Obama administration, is being rescinded.
3: Lawsuits were immediately filed in states across the country, challenging the Trump administration's move. Eventually, the case made its way to the Supreme Court. The stakes were high. This case was jeopardizing hundreds of thousands of people's chances to reside, work, and live full lives in the United States. For the last two years since President Trump announced his administration's intention to do away with DACA, it's been especially uncertain for those who were left to wonder if they would even have a future in this country at all. The Supreme Court's decision last week means that more than 700,000 recipients can now stay under the existing parameters of the DACA program, at least for now. The 5-4 to four decision came as a shock to many from both critics.
2: What we have is uh,
3: a Supreme Court saying that's not good enough. You need to go back at it. You need to relook at that. Uh, and that's very troubling to me. As well as supporters of the DACA program.
0: It's easy to be pessimistic given the landscape in the country and how much DACA holders and their families have had to go through under this administration.
3: Our Latino USA producer, Alejandra Salazar, has been following this story and joins me now to talk about how this case has impacted DACA recipients.
1: Ale, welcome to the show. Hey, Maria. It's good to be here.
3: You're on this side of the mic now. Usually you're a producer out um, on the streets, but now you're going to help us understand this particular story. And this is one of the most awaited decisions from the Supreme Court's term. So let's step back for a moment. And get a sense of how important DACA, which again is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, how important is it for the people who are part of this program?
1: DACA recipients, they came to the U.S. when they were very young, usually as babies or young children, with their parents, and they were undocumented immigrants. That context is very important because the oldest DACA recipients would still be in their 30s right now. And speaking broadly, they consider the United States, where many came of age, as their home. So I'm i am not necessarily going to dive deep into the history of DACA because that's a whole other podcast series. But... The reasons this program is so important in a nutshell is that it allows hundreds of thousands of people, many of them dreamers, though not all dreamers are DACA recipients, that's important to note, but it allows them to securely live in this country, to go to college, to access educational opportunities, to get jobs and support their families here and in their birth country. I recently did speak with one of those recipients in the weeks leading up to the Supreme Court decision. Her name is Dalia Larios. She applied to the program back in 2012, just when President Obama's administration rolled it out for the very first time. Dalia told me that she was really excited about the DACA program, but she was very wary of it, too. She was pretty nervous because it was something she'd never seen before. It was new to her.
2: It definitely seemed like something that was very, very temporary, two years at a time, Uh, It gave no path to citizenship or any other form of legalization.
1: Dalia's family moved to Mesa, Arizona from a small town near Colima, Mexico, when she was just 10 years old. It's a story very similar to that of a lot of other DACA recipients. And she remembers the time that the program rolled out. She remembers it really clearly. She had just graduated from Arizona State University. She was an undocumented student, and she'd been undocumented for all four years of undergrad.
2: I knew I wanted to be a doctor, and I remember thinking, you know, this is this is the door to that next step. This has to be it, But even though this this looked like the next step,
1: this felt right, like the next step, it was still a leap of faith. You know, the doc application asks for a lot of personal information uh, and a lot of people who, maybe aren't DACA holders or don't know too much about the program closely, might not realize it, but you have to pass a background check. You have to disclose if you have any kind of criminal record or any interactions with law enforcement, if you've ever been incarcerated, you have to give your academic history. You have to prove that you came to the United States when you were younger than 16 years old and that you've lived here continuously, which often means disclosing details, really personal, intimate details about your family.
2: I think it put a huge question on the immigrant community. You know, if it were to end, what would the government do with all that information? You know, with all those things in mind, I still went ahead and I applied. She enrolled in the program and Dalia's big picture dream
1: was to attend medical school. And, you know, the medical school application process is already arduous and costly and You know, you've got the MCAT, you've got applications, you've got essays, you've got interview after interview. On top of that, she faced additional hurdles because of her legal status, even with DACA.
2: The minute they would hear the word undocumented, it just absolutely deterred them. And and they would say, you know, we don't consider uh, those types of students. (laughs) You have to be a U.S. citizen. You have to be a resident. But, you know, here's the amazing part of
1: her story, which is she made it. Dalia is Dr. Larios now. She graduated from Harvard Medical School last year, and this month she's wrapping up her first year of residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, which... Brings us back to your question, Maria. For undocumented immigrants, so much energy and effort on a regular basis is spent maintaining this already precarious situation you're in, in staying safe in this country that can be threatening you and your loved ones and your livelihood, but it's it's also the place you call home. So what DACA does is that it offers some of these people's security. It's not as secure as, say, full citizenship. Dahlia uh, still needs to renew her DACA status every two years, so do other recipients. But, you know, it's, it's still security. And that security translates into time and opportunities. And it's not an easy process by any means, but the way that Dahlia explained it to me, it takes a crucial weight off your shoulders.
3: People might forget how emotionally charged these decisions are to, for example, sign up for DACA. But the people who did essentially have built their lives here in the United States because of this program. And they had this kind of sense of stability. But then, you know, in 2017, Donald Trump wins. The government then under his direction decides that they want to try to end the program. And that's followed by several high profile court cases where DACA itself has essentially been under constant threat. So how did the Trump administration justify trying to end this program?
1: First off, just to be clear, the Trump administration can end DACA. That's not in question. The question that was before the court was if they did it correctly, if they did it right, uh, and if they justified it correctly. So I did really want to understand the legal elements of this case. So to do that, I called up Paige Austin. She's an attorney for Make the Road New York, an immigrants rights organization. And she's been involved with this case for years, since before it even came before the Supreme Court. Now, Paige told me that the government had offered some sort of pretense for ending the program. So they claimed DACA was contrary to law, or
0: to put it more plainly, they said, well, DACA's is illegal. The government's going to going to be sued. And so our hands are tied. We have to end the DACA program because it's unlawful. So here's the Cliff Notes version.
1: When an agency like the Department of Homeland Security, which runs DACA, alters a program like this, it just it has to explain why. After the termination of DACA was announced, lawsuits cropped up all over the country arguing that the government didn't do that. They didn't properly explain why. They said that the administration's reasoning
0: for calling DACA illegal was just insufficient. You know, this is, this is a little bit of um, extrapolation, but I think that the likely reason that they did that was because they wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to terminate the program, but without taking the blame for doing it.
1: There were enough lawsuits across the country making this argument that three of them got bundled up into the one that ended up before the Supreme Court. Now, the court ended up agreeing with the pro-DACA team, which is where we ended up now. It said the government's justification didn't hold water.
3: So we're talking about two years for the Supreme Court to make this decision. And during those two years, these are undocumented young people, mostly, whose lives are in this kind of limbo and really deeply emotionally impacted by this lack of clarity regarding a policy impacting their lives. So I'm wondering, what have you been able to find out, Ali, in terms of kind of the emotional toll that this back and forth and lack of clarity on DACA, what what did it mean for the people who are actually going to be the most affected by this?
1: Whenever DACA faces political challenges like this, even if it's not to this giant scale, but it, it reverberates through the lives of DACA recipients like Dahlia, um, which is what she told me. And reality just remained really fragile as the Supreme Court case continued. I mean, you saw week after week, a decision just wouldn't arrive. When the decision did finally drop, uh, I texted Dr. Larios that same morning. She wasn't able to hop on the phone then and there, but she messaged back and she told me verbatim, there's a lot of emotions and... um you know, this was text, but clearly I'd, I think I'd guess that was an understatement. Anyway, she was dealing with a patient emergency at the time that I texted her uh, and the time that the decision came out because that's what she's been doing on a regular basis. We actually talked about this, though, a while back before the decision was released. Dr. Larios told me that one of her coping mechanisms essentially
2: was to focus on her patients, to focus on her work that she's so passionate about. But it's only when I sort of get home and I have this extra time that that reality can really sink in. And I realize that there's so much that I that I can lose.
1: So before this decision came down, yeah, there was definitely a lot of uncertainty about the future of the program and what would happen to people's statuses based off of whatever the Supreme Court said. But like Valia and probably many, many others, they've they've been thinking about this for a lot longer than. A
2: Supreme Court case. There's sort of three big things that I, I think would would be losses and tremendous losses. One, um, I lose my home, this country. Uh, I, Although I was not born here, I have been raised um, here and this is what I identify as home. Home also means her community, her family.
1: Dr. Larios told me that she comes from a mixed status home, so her siblings are U.S. citizens, and they helped her dad become one too. And her mom has permanent residency and is studying to take her citizenship test.
2: So I'm the only um, person in my family who's undocumented, Uh, so it means losing my family as well.
1: And, you know, of course, it would also mean losing her career as a doctor, something that she's been working towards her entire adult
2: life. It's, it's hard to really put words to all those losses, because um, after that, after you lose all of that, you, you sort of ask yourself, what do I have left?
1: This goes beyond Dr. Larios. DACA encompasses a vast and diverse population. I mean, the program is often identified as like a Latinx issue, but there are recipients from countries all over the world, in Asia and Africa, the Middle East, not just Latin America. And I also wanted to say that we're so grateful that Dr. Larios can share her story and that she has the platform to speak out on this issue and that she's worked hard to be able to amplify her voice like this. But she's still just one of thousands of people in this program. For the large part, their status is secure for now, but who knows what's waiting down the line?
3: When we come back, we talk about what was at stake in this case and the very real risks that DACA holders face.
0: There are reasons for wanting to cancel the DACA program. Let's face it, we're never about legality, as as far as I'm concerned. They've always been about policy, about racial animus, about xenophobia, about opposition to, to immigrants' presence in the United States.
3: That's coming up on Latino USA. Stay with us. No te vayas.
0: Actress Tracy Ellis Ross is used to people talking about her age a lot. And she's okay with whatever people say. I'm 47 years old and I'm the most comfortable in my skin I've ever been. What, when we go back to being 22? No, thank you. The Blackish Star on Confronting an Ageist World. Listen and subscribe to It's Been a Minute from NPR. <laughs>
3: Hey, we're back and we're going to continue our conversation now with Latino USA producer Alejandra Salazar, who's breaking down the DACA case. And she's going to tell us about what comes next after the Supreme Court decision. With the existing DACA program in the clear right now, it still is possible that DACA recipients seem to be just, you know, a court decision, an executive order away from having everything put at risk potentially again. And I'm wondering whether or not this conversation about these risks, these possible deportations, was this brought up at all before the Supreme Court?
1: Yeah, I I was really wondering that too. Um, So was Paige Austin, the uh, legal expert we spoke to. So I'm sure you saw, but in December, there were reports that ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, was actually reopening deportation cases against DACA recipients. It didn't seem like they planned to stop either. It looked like they were preparing to take action if this decision
0: went their way. Since the argument in November, the Trump administration has made clear through a number of different statements that they are looking to deport DACA holders. Chief Justice
1: Roberts' majority opinion rejected that premise completely. Justice Sotomayor, however, wrote a concurrent opinion saying that the attorneys for DACA should have been able to try to make that argument, that there could be a legal case to be made that the motivation behind ending DACA was discriminatory,
3: along with being unjustified. Right. So justices on the Supreme Court disagree with each other. But there has been a particular kind of attention to what's happening with this court. You have two Supreme Court justices appointed by Donald Trump. And so ideologically, there's just a lot of shifting that's going on. So how did that play into the legal strategy here?
1: Well, now that the decision is out, we do have the benefit of hindsight to take a look at the strategy. Chief Justice Roberts, like I mentioned, wrote the majority opinion. He was joined by Kagan, Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor. Trump's two appointees, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, both dissented, along with Thomas and Alito. Now, it's really interesting to consider this, I think, because here's something else that Paige said that really stood out to me. The Trump administration wanted to push the case up to the Supreme Court, bypassing the appellate courts sometimes, in the hopes of leveraging that conservative majority and getting the result they wanted.
0: It was in keeping with what we've seen in the last few years, which is essentially the government being allowed to hopscotch over the courts of appeals and go straight to the Supreme Court. We knew that at that point, the fate of the DACA program rested with these nine individuals in Washington.
1: I think this underscores just how momentous the court's impact really is. These landmark cases can affect millions of people in dramatic, life-altering ways. I mean, think of the Supreme Court's greatest hits. Roe v. Wade, Brown v. Board of Education, Citizens United, even Bostock v. Clayton County, which was announced earlier this session, where the court decided that LGBTQ employees are protected by the Civil Rights Act. These decisions change history, full stop, and these nine people have that kind of power.
2: Which, you know, brings us back to Dr. Ladios. When I would think about this decision, say back in January, it felt it felt very far. It felt removed enough that um that maybe it it didn't fully sink in that my life and my future was in the hands of, you know, nine people.
1: When I talked to Dahlia a few weeks ago at that time, this thought was paralyzing. It was just better to throw herself into her work.
2: The ICU that I've been on more more recently, has been sort of uh, the one responsible for taking care of most of our COVID patients.
3: Dr. Larios is, in fact, a frontline worker. She's in a hospital, and it turns out that COVID-19 actually became an issue in this case before the Supreme Court. How did that happen?
1: So Dr. Larios works in the ICU, often at night.
2: So the night can become very busy very fast. Uh, you're sort of always kept on your toes uh, because patients can deteriorate very quickly.
1: And Dahlia is not the only one on the front lines. About 27,000 DACA recipients are working in healthcare right now as nurses, home health aides, pharmacists, physician assistants and doctors like Dahlia. Make the Road, which is where Page works, also estimates there are about 200 medical students across the country who are DACA holders. When arguments were first heard last year, last November, like no one had heard of COVID-19. And so taking that into consideration was kind of a
0: last minute plot twist. Here's Paige again. At that time, there was not a global health pandemic and um, that issue... Was simply not directly before the court. In March, plaintiffs filed a short
1: brief underscoring the importance of the thousands of DACA recipients working in healthcare right now. One more thing worth noting across the board, we don't have enough people in the United States doing the kind of work that Dahlia and these other healthcare workers are doing anyway. The Association of American Medical Colleges projects that there will be a shortage of up to nearly 122,000 physicians in this country by 2032.
3: That's about a little more than a decade away. At this point, can we begin to understand what the policy implications are of this Supreme Court decision, or is it too soon?
1: We kind of can start to understand the policy implications, but they're a bit more narrow and specific to this case, it turns out. So when plaintiffs arguing in favor of DACA came in saying the Trump administration acted unlawfully, the government basically told the courts, okay, wait, you can't even weigh in on an agency decision like this. And the Supreme Court disagreed with that. They said, no, judicial review does apply and executive programs like this can be challenged in the courts. So that's the first part in which nothing really kind of changed. The Supreme Court also told the Trump administration that they hadn't played by the rules. So like we mentioned, that means the government didn't provide a good reason for canceling DACA. But again, Page says the logic behind the decision wasn't new or a surprise.
0: The administration, whatever administration it is, has to own up to its actions and has to set out detailed rationales for what it does. So, you know, that's not a new concept. That's not a new requirement. Um, But obviously, if we go back to especially to the first few years of the Trump administration, you see very fly by night decision making. Not
1: to sound like I'm going in circles here, but DACA wasn't upheld because it was legal. It was because the government didn't prove that it was illegal. And maybe it sounds like it's the same difference, but it's actually a key distinction. Sure, this means that in the future, whatever administration is in the White House can extend DACA or make future immigration-related programs. But it also means that any administration could technically move to shut DACA down yet again so long as they show their work.
0: I think the coming days and weeks are gonna be really important to see, are they willing to try again, to do a more reasoned analysis and to own up to their reasons for wanting to cancel the DACA program, be reset on whether that would be legal or not.
3: This is a win for undocumented immigrants and the activists and people who supported them throughout many, many years. But at this point, what can we say about what the future looks like for DACA holders and their supporters in terms of moving forward?
1: So Paige, our legal expert, is advising a cautious approach to DACA still. So if an individual person wants to apply for the first time, or if they want to apply for things like advanced parole, which allows DACA recipients to travel outside of the U.S., or if they just have other questions about the program, Consult a lawyer first, if possible. But looking at the bigger picture, Page says a program like DACA is a start, not a solution. Like we've mentioned, DACA covers over 700,000 people, but that's a pretty small number compared to the estimated 11 million undocumented immigrants in this country.
0: Even if the DACA program remains in place, our work is not done here. Many, many people have benefited, but many people were also left out by virtue of their age or by virtue of when they arrived in the United States. So Paige and other people who support DACA are looking for a legislative fix. They're looking for a law that goes way beyond what DACA covers right now. We want it to address immigrants across the spectrum, not only those who fall within the parameters of the 2012 DACA program, and we absolutely are gonna keep pushing for that.
1: DACA itself, while it's been a game changer in many ways, it's also not at all a perfect program. DACA isn't a path to citizenship. It isn't permanent. Like I mentioned, recipients have to renew their status every two years. DACA was an executive order, not a law passed by Congress. So it falls into jeopardy whenever someone who doesn't agree with the program or the existing immigration policy is elected into the White House. By the way, if you're keeping track for 2020, the candidates do diverge on the issue. Joe Biden released a video statement after the decision in support of the Supreme Court.
0: Today was another landmark victory. The Supreme Court has made it clear that DACA is the law of the land.
1: He also called for immigration reform.
0: Together, we can restore our values as a nation of immigrants, as a nation that values immigrants.
1: Meanwhile, President Trump tweeted about his disappointment with the SCOTUS decision. He called it, quote, politically charged and promised to appoint more conservative justices if elected for a second term. Now, at one point, I asked Dr. Larios about her hopes that the Supreme Court would rule in favor of DACA. And like most of our conversations, this was before the decision was released. And I asked her, hypothetically, at that point, if the Supreme Court upheld DACA, how would she feel?
2: It offers us a a small moment of, of respite, a small maybe sigh of relief.
1: She had her answer ready to go immediately, like she's been thinking about it for her whole life, or at least for the last eight years of it.
2: We made it through another tremendous mountain uh, through another enormous challenge. But I think it's not just about, you know, all the legal paperwork, it's your life being tossed around. I
1: think what it comes down to is that Dalia, Dr. Larios, hopes for more from her country.
2: It really, I think it calls for something permanent. It calls for action that will allow us to have peace of mind going forward that won't continue to put us in the state where we're constantly worried and living day by day in uncertainty. No one should have to live like this.
1: There is a lot to celebrate, including avoiding the worst possible scenario for so many people. But people are also still pushing for more permanent solutions. DACA can still come under threat, either under this administration or in the courts or sometime in the nebulous future. So watch this space, because this is just the beginning.
3: Thank you, Ale, for your reporting and for joining me on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Maria. This episode was produced by Alejandra Salazar with help from Sofia Palizacar and Miguel Macias. It was edited by Luis Treyes. The Latino USA team includes Antonia Cerejido, Janice Yamoka, Gini Montalvo, and Alice Escarce with help from Raul Perez. Our engineers are Stephanie Lebeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelholz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our New York Women's Foundation Ignite Fellow is Julia Rocha, who provided fact-checking for this episode. Our interns are Sofia Sanchez and Marie Mendoza. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, look for us on all of your social media. I'll see you there. Hasta la próxima.
1: Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by The Annie E. Casey Foundation creates a brighter future for the nation's children by strengthening families, building greater economic opportunity, and transforming communities. Carnegie Corporation, promoting the advancement and diffusion of knowledge and understanding. And Funding for Latino USA's coverage of a culture of health is made possible in part by a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation.
3: I'm Maria Hinojosa, next time on Latino USA. How Brazil became the epicenter of the coronavirus in Latin America and a major hotspot of COVID-19 in the world.
0: We're going to be the first on everything. In number of deaths of coronavirus, in number of people unemployed, it's really scary.
3: That's next time on Latino USA.